0: Hello and welcome to The Mariner's Library with me Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode we're continuing the book The Romantic Challenge by Sir Francis Chichester. This is the second part of the reading and we're continuing chapter one. Now if you haven't already please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash The Mariner and there for five dollars a month you can not only support this podcast but also get access to additional exclusive Patreon only content. Now on with the story. Chapter 1 continued. My first task was to obtain the most suitable yacht I could for the race. Gypsy Moth 4 did not belong to me but to my cousin Tony Dolverton, who had presented her to the Greater London Council. They had put her on permanent exhibition alongside the Cutty Sark at Greenwich, so she was not available. Even if she had been, I knew she was not the right craft for the job I had in mind, The winner of the third single-handed transatlantic race in 1968 was Geoffrey Williams in the 57-foot Sir Thomas Lipton. She had exactly the kind of hull design which I had originally wanted for my round-the-world speed dash in 1966, but I had been talked out of that and into the Gypsy Moth 4. Afterwards, I regretted this, and when Sir Thomas Lipton turned up exactly what I had in mind... I decided to ask her designer, Robert Clark, to design Gypsy Moth 5 on the same lines. Robert had designed my Gypsy Moth 3, the winner of the first single-handed transatlantic race in 1960 and second boat in the 1964 race. Gypsy Moth 3 was a conventional cruiser racer, similar to the long line of successful such yachts that Robert had already designed, and I believe that he might never have broken so radically away from it had it not been for Geoffrey Williams. Jeffrey is a clever, single-purposed, ambitious young Cornishman who had carefully read up model yacht design while teaching in New York, and he succeeded in persuading Robert to design a boat like a fast model racing yacht. I am convinced that model yacht designers are far ahead of ocean racing yacht designers. They can watch their designs sailing in every and all conditions of wind and water with great ease and can quickly make changes to the design or can experiment with it in a way which is impossible for the ocean-going yacht designer. Not least of Geoffrey's accomplishments was his ability to persuade Robert to carry out the design as he wanted it. I have always found Robert difficult to deal with. He has his own views on what should be built or used, and I have the impression that he does not like any suggested change in layout or equipment. For instance, Sheila specifically asked for seats in Gypsy Moth V's cabin with the comfort and backward slope of a motor car seat. What turned up? The cabin city back actually slopes the opposite way, so that one sits with one's bottom outboard under the back of the seat and one's shoulders pushed forward over the cabin table. As for the galley, the chart table, the navigation area and my bunk, for which I wanted what I considered a modern layout, they turned up without a single drawer for storage among the lot? Why then did I go to Robert again, and why am I now, as I write, discussing with him how to get Gypsy Moth going faster next year? Because I firmly believe him to be the best designer in Britain of a hull, and perhaps of the rig, for the project I had in mind. All Robert's yachts that I have had experience with or know about run true, which is of the greatest importance for fast single-handed sailing, Also, his designs have always had one most valuable characteristic. Over the years, it is possible to modernise or modify them without losing their handsome appearance or good sailing characteristics. And lastly, he has the fine record as a designer of having produced the winning yachts in two of the three single-handed transatlantic races, and the second boat in the other. Geoffrey invited me to come for a sail in Sir Thomas Lipton with him and Robert, It was a foggy, end-of-the-year day in the Solent, with scarcely enough breeze to keep the yacht moving, but I saw enough to confirm that this was the basic design I wanted. Sir Thomas Lipton was beautifully balanced. She could not enter the narrow Bewley River, where my home mooring is, because we had no motor, but we sailed back to Cowes. Here she went aground as she was turning into the first line of mooring piles. It was fortunate that Robert was at the helm and not me— I had invited him and Geoffrey to dinner at the Royal Yacht Squadron, and as it was getting late, we looked likely to miss out on our dinner. So I took Geoffrey with me to hearten the chef, while Robert sat it out until he had floated off and moored up. Robert had sketched me a rough sail plan for my new gypsy moth on the back of an envelope, and this staysail catch rig was completed with practically no change whatever from the sketch on his envelope. At this sort of thing, he really has a touch of genius. With the staysail catch rig, there was no mainsail, but a staysail setting between the two masts, from the top of the mizzen mast to the foot of the mainmast. His theory was that a normal mainsail for such a big yacht would be too big and heavy for me to handle, whereas if the same sail area was split up into mizzen staysail and topsail, I would be able to handle the rig easily. Unfortunately, He carried his theory farther, and without my knowledge, some of the other gear specified for the yacht was made extra light for my ease of handling. This naturally meant that its strength was that much less, which had a drastic effect on my project in, for example, the matter of the spinnaker poles. On the other hand, the sails specified for Gypsy Moth 5 were of stiff and heavy material, which used up my energy and strength extravagantly when I had to handle them in stormy weather. Strength shrinks and reactions slow up with age. Undoubtedly, I am much less strong than I was at 19 when I was working in a coal mine. On the other hand, I believe that with increasing age I have developed cunning and skill in devising means of getting over difficulties without calling on brute strength. But I cannot recall Robert ever asking my opinion about heavy sea sailing, in which I have experience." If only our temperaments had allowed us to work together in 1969 and 70, as we are at present, I think a faster and more efficient Gypsy Moth 5 would have resulted. The design was thrashed out, contracts were drawn up, and everything was ready to start building the new yacht at the end of 1969. I thought that Rodney Warrington Smith's boatyard at Falmouth would be the yard to build it. Sheila and I like Rodney, and he has a fine reputation in the boat-building world. Robert agreed, but later said he feared Rodney would not be able to complete in time and produced another offer from the Crosshaven boatyard at Cork in Ireland. The price was lower, which could compensate partly for the greater expense of flying to Cork periodically to look at the building. Also, Gypsy Moth 3 was built at Eyre in Arklow, south of Dublin, and I had found that I liked working with the Irish, so I agreed. In the end, Gypsy Moth 5 was not launched until towards the end of June 1970, instead of in March as contracted, but the delay was chiefly due to being unable to get delivery of gear from an English firm for the engine and a feathering propeller. Although Gypsy Moth was designed for fast deep-sea racing, she needed a motor. For one reason, Lord Montagues had given me the freedom of the Bewley River and a mooring there for life after my circumnavigation and the river is now so crowded with moorings that for a yacht of 57 foot overall and 29 tons Thames measurement, a motor is usually necessary for manoeuvring up the river. Secondly, Gypsy Moth's topsides have too much windage for a single-hander to haul her up to an anchor and then break it out in a near gale in a restricted anchorage without a motor or powered capstan to help. A third reason is, is that the Marconi-Kestrel radio telephone set, which I have used on most of my voyages for transmitting reports to a newspaper or the BBC, requires a powerful set of batteries and a motor to charge them, and I thought it best to use one motor both for propelling the yacht and for charging the batteries. The engine installation gave me more trouble than all the rest of the yacht and its gear together. To start with, the propeller used to go into forward when the lever was put into reverse, this caused me to go aground on the Beaulieu River bank when picking up my mooring single-handed. It was only a matter of minutes before a Fleet Street newspaper was ringing up the harbourmaster, asking about the stranding. One man's mishap may be another's joy, but in this case I was a disappointment, because I got Gypsy Moth off the mud again unaided after a few minutes. Another awkward episode was when I bought Gypsy Moth from her mooring to Buckler's Hard, where Edward Montague wanted her to remain for a week, moored fore and aft between two piles, so that visitors to his motor museum at Bewley and the Maritime Museum at the Hard could see her. I motored Gypsy Moth upriver into a position to make fast the stem to the pile, but when I put the engine into reverse to take way off, it went into forward, and Gypsy Moth charged ahead. I was faced with rows of yachts moored alongside each other. Altogether, there must have been 15 or 20 of them. Although I had put the engine out of gear, Gypsy Moth was moving fast enough for the only alternatives to either be to charge straight into the yachts or to drive into the shallow water between them and the bank where one or two dinghies and small craft were moored. I chose the latter, and with Gypsy Moth drawing nearly eight and a half feet, I waited miserably for the clunk when she struck bottom. I threaded my way through the dinghies. Gypsy Moth behaved as if enjoying the situation and kept going. The owners of all the moored yachts seemed to be watching, so I gave my cap a hitch and tried to look as if Gypsy Moth had always tied up in this way. Providence or fate was watching benevolently, and Gypsy Moth proceeded gaily on her way. She went right round the outside of all the yachts and back again into the stream without touching bottom or another vessel, then proceeded sedately downriver, where the skilful harbour master took the bow warp and secured her to the pile. That was not the end of the troubles. While at Buckler's hard, the propeller shaft seized up altogether when being tested. Gypsy moth had to be sailed across the Solent to Cowes, the nearest place where a hauling crane able to lift a yacht of her size out of the water was available. It was found that the propeller shaft was out of alignment, and that the stern tube, which ought to have had grease forced into it until it squirted out at the propeller end, was mostly filled with seawater instead of grease. As a result, the white metal bearings had seized up. These troubles with the propeller shaft and gear continue as I write. I want to stress that these time-delaying, irritating troubles with the motor and the design and finish of the interior accommodation were relatively trivial when compared with the excellent work of the shipwrights at Crosshaven on the hull of Robert's design, for I am convinced that a better construction job could not have been found. Gypsy Moth is like a big dinghy, 57 foot long, waterline length 41 feet 8 inches, beam 12 foot, draught 8 foot 4.5 inches and displacement 17 tons. The Thames tonnage is, as I have said, 29 tons. She has a flattish bottom of the skimming dish type like a scow with a fin keel and a skeg with rudder separate from the keel well after the cockpit. The fin is a 7.5 ton lump of iron bolted to the wooden keelson. All the frames and stringers are of laminated wood, as also are the keelson and the stem. The hull itself is three-skinned, which is to say it has three separate plankings, two of them diagonally laid across each other, and the third, the outside skin, horizontal. These are bonded together with glue and make the great strength that I wanted in the hull. I just cannot praise the constructional work by the shipwrights too highly. All this time, I was puzzling over what form my speed attempt should take. I kept both the project and my plans strictly secret from everybody but Robert, for I had had an embittering experience of another project and proposed means of achieving it, which I had described in the strictest confidence, being passed on and made use of. Robert, I know, can be as tight as a clam about a client's project. Much of my spare time was spent in studying charts and weather maps, particularly the United States hydrographic pilot charts and the comparatively new British Admiralty routing charts, which are produced one for every month of the year. Both the United States and the British charts are fine productions, most helpful to the deep-sea yachtsmen. They give the average winds for a month for each rectangle of five degrees of latitude and five degrees of longitude, it was Lieutenant Fontaine Morey of the US Navy who conceived the idea of these charts in the early 19th century, but the Admiralty routing charts were exceptionally valuable for my purpose. They gave the average percentage of winds to be expected for the particular month of each different strength for each separate octant of the compass, the percentage expectancy of calms and variable winds, and the number of observations from which the averages had been deduced. 200 miles a day target was so much faster than Gypsy Moth 4's 176 miles per day that I knew I must get all the help I possibly could in order to have any chance of success. I needed the most favourable sight, the wind conditions, weather and current. This was going to be quite unlike previous sailing enterprises and more like an attempt to set a high speed record in a powerboat or a motor car. For these, the most favourable conditions are sought after, and although my problem was complicated by the time span involved, I felt I needed exactly the same sort of support from my choice of the time of the year, the site, the weather, and the rest. At this stage, my interest was simply to be somewhere where I could sail fast for a period or periods of five days during a voyage. I thought that my best chance of finding the conditions I wanted, without going to or even considering the Pacific, which was too far away, was to make another run through the northeast trade wind belt in the North Atlantic. It was in this that Gypsy Moth 4 had put up her fastest run in her round-the-world voyage of 1966-67. The zone of the trade wind alters with the seasons of the year, but lies roughly between 5 degrees north and 25 degrees north, and stretches right across from Africa to America. Perhaps its greatest attraction was that it provides the best chance of steady, constant winds, which were likely to be fresh, but unlikely to be stronger than moderate gale force. January seemed the most favourable month, and my first plan was to make one 1,000-mile 1, run down to the equator, and a second run, a copy of Gypsy Moth 4's speed run in 1967, from the equator northwards. So far, all my hopes were based on Gypsy Moth 5 being swift and sure. They were little more than an optimistic vision at this stage. How often have I made plans with the greatest care, sure that every obstacle and difficulty had been foreseen, only to find when it came to putting them into practice that some vital and perhaps simple snag had been completely overlooked. I had to get Gypsy Moth 4 offshore and put her through the stiffest trials, it would be vital to learn how to get the best out of her. Some yachts have their greatest success when they come brand new from the yard and straight into a race, but I suspect that this success in most cases is because their sails have at that stage perfect aeroforce shape, undistorted yet by hard weather. Well, that's the end of the episode for today. I hope you're enjoying the story so far. Now, if you haven't already, please check out the other podcast, The Mariner. There's lots of seamanship advice there and stories from my life sailing and we answer questions and go off on terrible tangents and things that uh, seem to keep people that are interested in sailing quite entertained. That's The Mariner podcast. Of course, you can go to YouTube and pick out The Mariner there and at the moment, we're on board with the 40 foot Triamaran Spirit, sailing from Antigua to Bermuda and then on to New England. And all of this being made possible by the kind donations of sailors over on Patreon.com forward slash The Mariner. Well, that's all for today from The Mariner's Library. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.